I Take History with My Coffee podcast, Episode 2, The Maritime Revolution. And the said Lord, wishing that they should pass beyond it, thus made his decision in the following year, with the favor and help of God. For the caravels of Portugal, being the best sailing ships that navigate on the seas, if they should be provided with all that is necessary, he judge it impossible that they might not be able to sail to all and sundry places. The Journals of the Voyages of Catamosto to the Coast of Africa, 1455 and 1456. Welcome to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast. Join me as we journey through the history of the early modern period. I'm old enough to remember watching the Apollo 11 moon landing on a small black and white TV. It was an amazing accomplishment that is still viewed as one of the monumental achievements of human ingenuity. It was an accomplishment nearly 10 years in the making, 10 years in developing the means, the tools, and the technology required, the method to get men to and from the moon, the type of rocket, the configuration of the rocket, the computer and communication systems, new materials against heat, cold, and the absence of air, and dedicated funding and commitment. Technologies do not appear overnight. They are built upon and added to. They evolve over time. The title of this episode is called The Maritime Revolution, but more accurately should be called A Maritime Evolution. The tools, science, and skills the Portuguese used to make their way around Africa to India had been developing since at least the 12th century. They came from the Arabs or the Chinese as ideas were exchanged along the old trade networks. Yet it was the Europeans who continued to innovate, pushing forward in search of a better mousetrap. Literary references for a magnetic compass being used for divination date back to the Han Dynasty China during the 2nd and 1st century BCE. Compasses used for land navigation appear during the Song Dynasty in the early 11th century CE and for maritime navigation a century later. These early compasses made use of lodestone, a naturally magnetized form of the mineral magnetite, of which China had an ample supply of. The first mention of a magnetized needle happens in 1088. A Song Dynasty text describes rubbing a needle with a lodestone and then suspending it with a strand of silk and wax at the center of the needle. Most Chinese compasses from this period were what is called a wet compass. These are magnetized needles that float in a container of water. Dry compasses, in the form of a suspended needle, were known in China, but not widely used. Arabic texts 
indicate that compasses were being used by the Arabs as maritime navigation, beginning at least in the early 13th century CE. Descriptions of these compasses suggest there was a transmission of knowledge between China and the Muslim world. At first, like the Chinese, the Arabs used wet compasses. But by the early 14th century, they were using dry compasses as well. One of the first mentions in Europe of a compass is by the English cleric Alexander Neckham, who described them in two works written in the late 12th century. During a crossing of the English Channel, Neckham witnessed sailors, quote, When in cloudy weather they can no longer profit by the light of the sun, or when the world is wrapped up in the darkness of the shades of night, and they are ignorant to what point of the compass their ship's course is directed, they touch the magnet with a needle, which is whirled around in a circle until, when its motion ceases, its point looks directly to the north. End quote. Prior to 1300, both in the east and the west, compasses remained simply a needle through a straw which floats in a container of liquid, something familiar to any primary school student. Something akin to a modern-day pocket compass began to develop throughout the 14th century. The center of the transition between a needle and a bowl to a self-contained instrument was the Mediterranean. An Amalfi mariner was at one time credited with constructing the first functional dry compass. It is told that he suspended a needle over a wind rose and enclosed it in a box with a glass cover. This fact has since been debated as there is evidence of others experimenting with a similar design. Regardless, it seems that after 1300, dry compasses of this design were being developed throughout the Mediterranean. Needles were attached to a stationary compass card. These crude instruments were certainly an improvement over the needle and bowl, but were useful for orientation and map making, but not accurate enough for steering a ship. By the end of the 14th century, there are descriptions of what would be considered a true mariner's compass, one with a needle attached to a rotating card. When a ship turned, then the card turned to indicate the ship's new direction. This was the ultimate refinement and provided sailors the means to navigate with accuracy. At the end of the 13th century, Catalan mystic Ramon Lowe describes a ship navigator establishing his position relative to his course by using a magnetized needle, charts, and mathematical tables. This was a more sophisticated use of a compass than simply orienteering. The impact of the compass was most notable in the Mediterranean Basin, the Bay of Biscay, and perhaps the English Channel, all areas that relied heavily on navigating by astronomical means. The compass allowed sailors to navigate during inclement weather and during the day. Economically speaking, this enabled merchants to t- conduct more voyages and extended the sailing season throughout the winter. It also meant increased trade between the Mediterranean and Northern Europe by rounding the Iberian Peninsula and across the Bay of Biscay. Going hand in hand with the appearance of the early mariner compasses was innovations in map making, in particular, maps intended to be used for navigation. 
During most of the medieval period, maps were not intended to be used by mariners. They lacked the accuracy and the detail necessary for navigation. But things begin to change in the 13th century. At the National Library in Paris, France, there is a piece of calf hide decorated with a chart of the Mediterranean basin. This map, known as the Cota Pisana, is so accurate that one can use it today to navigate around the Mediterranean Sea. The map is dated from the mid to late 13th century, and it is the oldest extent map of what is called Portolan charts. The exact origins of the Portolan chart remain a mystery. Portolan derives from the Italian portolano, the word for a collection of sailing directions. Since antiquity, these port books were used by navigators and pilots to compile their knowledge of routes, landmarks, hazards, etc. The term portolan chart was given in the 1890s because it was presumed that these charts were based off of these pilot books. That connection has been called into question in more modern scholarship. Today, non-English speaking scholars simply call them nautical charts, whereas English speakers still refer to them as Porterland charts. Other names that have been used are rum line charts or compass charts. In broadest terms, Porterland charts consisted of the coastal outline of the Mediterranean and Black Seas, hand-drawn with ink on vellum. Later charts would include the Western European coast up to the British Isles and the North Sea. After the 15th century, charts added Western Africa and the Baltic. Little detail was given to inland features, but the charts accurately mapped coves, harbors, inlets, and other places a ship could or perhaps could not put into. Place names were written on the land side of the coastline as not to block or obscure potential dangers. The distinctive feature of these maps is the network of rumb lines radiating out from compass roses drawn at various points. The rumb lines represent paths of constant bearing. So if one wanted to sail from Rome, Italy to Tunis on the North African coast, a captain would consult a portalon chart and find the appropriate course or bearing. In this particular case, perhaps due south. The captain then provides the helmsman with instructions on which direction to steer. Equipped with a dry compass, the ship could then maintain a steady southerly course regardless of the weather. The tandem of the compass and portalon chart fed off each other as Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese mariners created more accurate and more detailed maps. These maps eventually enabled them to improvise new routes, rather than simply moving from point to point. The Portuguese, more so than the Spanish crossing the Atlantic, would make use of both compass and nautical chart in their search for a route to India. By the time of Vasco da Gama's voyage to India, the caravel had become the standout vessel of exploration. Despite this, the contemporary journals and diaries provide little information about the actual ship itself. 
the origins of the design and the name are obscure with few written records. What references exist are scant, and oftentimes it is hard to tell whether they speak of a particular ship design, ships in general, or a local term for other types of vessels. Information must be gleaned from the archaeological record, contemporary shipbuilding treatises, and traditional shipbuilding techniques that have been passed down orally. The caravel is the child of the diffusion of European, Arabic, and Chinese ideas, cultures, and traditions. The development of the caravel was a gradual process from its possible origins as a fishing vessel. The early mentions of caravels date back to the middle of the 12th century. But by the end of the 15th century, the caravel was the pinnacle of European shipbuilding, incorporating many of the latest innovations in ship design. It had a shallow drought, speed and maneuverability, and the ability to sail close to the wind. It was the perfect vessel for exploring along the African coast or making a transatlantic voyage. It was approximately 50 tons, 80 feet or 25 meters long, 23 feet or 7 meters wide, fully decked, and with anywhere from 2 to 4 masts. But two features of the caravel contributed to its effectiveness as a ship of exploration. The first is a triangular lateen sail. Lateen sails had been the staple of ships since antiquity in the Mediterranean Sea. Square sails were favored by those in Northern Europe. Because a square sail is set across the line of the ship, it limits sailing to before the wind, that is, in the same direction as the wind is blowing. A lateen sail, on the other hand, is set in line with the ship. This provides better ability to control the sail and allows for the sail to take the wind from either side. This meant that a ship could now tack into the wind, which increased the maneuverability of the vessel. At first, caravels, especially Portuguese, were outfitted entirely with lateen sails. By the time of Columbus's voyage, the Spanish had begun to outfit ships with lateen sails fore and aft, and also a middle square sail. Thus, the Spanish, for transatlantic voyages, took advantage of both types of sails. The square sail, which was more suited in open ocean where winds were constant, and the flexibility of the lateen sail, which enabled efficient cruising along coastal waters. The second feature of the caravel is the adaptation of the stern post rudder. Up until the 13th century, rudders in medieval Europe were primarily mounted on the sides of the ship near the stern. Rudders mounted directly to the stern were first developed in ancient China and made their way west through the Islamic world. Ships in Europe began using the stern-mounted rudder to some extent, but their full potential did not become fully realized until the 14th century when shipbuilders began using a hinge to mount the rudder and the introduction of a fully rigged ship. Adoption of a stern post rudder provided better steering of a vessel. This translated into better maneuverability, 
which allowed ships such as the Caravelle to take full advantage of their capability to tack into opposing winds. By the mid-15th century, the Caravelle became the ship of choice for exploration. Columbus's Nina and Pinta were Caravelles, Bartolomeu Dias, whom we will discuss in the next episode, used all caravels in his rounding the Cape of Good Hope. Volta do Mar literally means turn of the sea in Portuguese. It was a description of how mariners can sail across oceans and return safely home. It indicated the growing knowledge about how water and air circulates through the Earth's ocean and atmosphere. It is a method of using winds and currents to one advantage. Beginning in the 13th century, expeditions to the Canary Islands and then Madeira and the Azores provided both Spanish and Portuguese mariners the knowledge they needed to make use of the major circulation patterns at the Earth's surface. The Earth's atmosphere is divided into alternating bands of prevailing winds, created by giant convection cells within the atmosphere. From the equator to 30 degrees north, the winds come out of the northeast, and from the equator to 30 degrees south, the winds come out of the southeast. These are the easterlies, or trade winds. Above 30 degrees north and below 30 degrees south, the winds come out of the west. These are the westerlies. These winds also produce surface currents in the oceans, creating great circling currents known as ocean gyras. The Gulf Stream current, for example, is part of the North Atlantic gyra. These currents had an impact on a ship's course. To get to the Canary Islands, pilots only had to follow the Canary Current south and follow the trade winds. But to return home, they needed to go west into the Atlantic, until they caught the westerlies to bring them back to Portugal or Spain. This was often a counterintuitive process. Why go west if one needed to go east? But it was crucial in further exploration. The Portuguese would expand their knowledge and their use of the Volta do Mer as they made their way along Africa's western coastline. Columbus utilized it to make his voyage to the Americas. Two centuries of technological innovation, of trial and error, of designing of better sailing vessels, and developing of new methods of sailing from point to point. All this accumulated in the achievements of Columbus and da Gama. It is not hard to imagine what contemporaries felt at this time. I am sure it was the same as millions who watched the first members of the human race take a step on the moon. An important step in putting men on the moon was putting a man in orbit around the earth and returning him safely. Bartolomeu Diaz's rounding of the Cape of Good Hope was as significant as John Glenn's achievement, and it set the stage for Vasco da Gama's own accomplishment. We talk more about Diaz's voyage on the next episode. Links to additional resources can be found in the episode description. Comments and feedback are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. 
visit my blog at itakehistory.com and on Facebook at I Take History with My Coffee. If you know anyone who would also enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thank you for listening.